John Ramsey, are you ready? I guess I'm ready. I'm never going to be ready. Anna K, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Start your engine. You're going to play All the music. Right. So, it, well, no, they edit that in, but I'll do it for you. Do, 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 do. Welcome, everybody, to the latest Boxes and Lines. I'm here with John Ramsey. Welcome John. to Boxes and Lines. So glad you could make it to our wee little podcast. And today, we have a friend of mine, Anna Korsrox, joining us for our little party. And Anna and I uh, go back to our days together in electronic trading at RBC. And now, uh, Anna, as many people listening to this know, has transitioned from Deutsche Bank over to BNP. Welcome aboard, Anna. Thank you. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Welcome. And if you if you know any uncompromising stories about Ronan, uh, we'd love to hear them during the course of the <laughs> podcast. That would be great. <laughs> That's when taping's over. Mm-hmm. Now, normally when we're in our office, we'd have you jammed into our little uh, podcast booth where you'd probably be profusely sweating by now. But all three of us are once again at home. We're making this recording, obviously, during coronavirus period. And as John and I like to say, we we like to have a bit of a laugh at this podcast and obviously we take the situation going on globally and locally as very very serious of course but just the one caveat we're just having a little bit of fun with this and trying to bring some levity both to that situation and frankly market structure is relatively boring as fuck <laughs> to most people <laughs> I mean, nice Fair? yes and now another Fair. reason is to why our podcasts are labeled for mature audiences only because of ronan's mouth yeah and i i if you know, I have to say, if the acoustics don't sound great for people and listeners, I uh, Ronan changed houses and he did not bring his equipment with him. Uh, so, you know, that's the reason. But, good job, um, Ronan. Yeah, yeah, good job. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks. You finally got your mic working like six months <laughs> in. So, 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 Anna, welcome aboard. We're very happy to have you here. And before we get into market structure wonky stuff, I wanted to go back. Uh, to our days at RBC, and when I was talking with you last week, uh, head of the podcast, you reminded me that I threw you to the lines uh, on the desk, and actually resulted in you having to do a pretty difficult run as a result of that. Can you recant that story? And John, 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 John will sympathize with you because he'll say this is the type of thing I would do. To mm-hmm. him. Well, yep. Okay, it, it's probably one of my favorites. I'd be uh, happy to. First thing is, though, before I begin, I, I do have to say, you know, standard disclaimer that any views and opinions I express are my own and do not reflect the views of BNP Paribas banks or uh, their affiliates. You sound like so. you work for the SEC. That's great. I That's know. what we always yeah. had to say. They they structure that pretty well. I've heard it enough, so I kind of have it in my head. I'm just going to delete that from that, the so podcast anyway. <laughs> 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 I'm only joking. We'll leave it in. We'll mm-hmm. leave it in. So the story goes, Ron and I sat back to back and I had recently started, maybe I was at RBC, you know, three months, four months or so. And Brad Katsuyama was putting a team together for the Empire State Building run. It was a team made up of employees, clients, and, you know, we were all going to do this run and you run straight up to the top of the Empire State Building. So he comes out to the desk and says to Ronan, you know, hey, I'm putting this together. You know, do you want to do it? And Ronan didn't even miss a beat. He turns around and he said, well, why don't you ask the new girl? She's new. She can't say no to anything. She'll do it. She's a runner. (laughs) And so I did it. I had to do it. 
Mm. So she she ran all the way to the top of the Empire State Building and she was awarded the pair of running socks, which she may have showed me and I still have today. (laughs) So I got the prize. I didn't even have to do it. Thanks, Anna. Yeah. Well, you're lucky. I run and makes me get his dry cleaning. I, I, no, that's that, I, that's a joke. He doesn't. No, I I actually do. <laughs> <laughs> but you shouldn't say it on here, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. No, but uh, I I used to be a runner, but I'm not running up steps anymore. And and I love to do all that kind of stuff. So I thought what we'd do is we'd start off on the big hubbub of buybacks, buybacks, buybacks. While we've been out of the office, there's been a lot of talk about buybacks. There's always a lot of talk about buybacks, but there's been talk about if you take the government's money, you can't do a buyback for X period of time. Are buybacks a negative thing? There's always talk about midpoint trading at the buyback on a buyback, but uh, Anna had an interesting perspective that I'd like her to bring up and hear your thoughts on it, John, around odd lots. It's a odd lots and buyback. I hadn't put one and one together. One and one is two, John. Um, I haven't put that together yet, Jesus, but uh, okay. here we go. <laughs> but here we, here we go. go. Here we go. Boxes and lines, my friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Take it, Anna. Take it. The topic of buybacks obviously was has been a frequent topic as as of late, especially over the uh, the past few weeks. And my team and I, we were talking about it, and they were, you know, we started saying, okay, maybe it's something that we should look into from a market structure perspective, and so. What I tried to do is come away from the controversy and say, regardless of any one person's opinion, as because we know there are pros and cons and people on both sides of the coin, the way that I think about it and the way that I like to think about just market structure in general is what's the impact on trading, right? There's market structure from the regulatory side, there's market structure from a quantitative side, but what I like to focus on is usually market structure for traders and you know how a lot of these changes, whether it's you know, the bigger picture rules like, you know, corporate buybacks and the rules surrounding that or even the small stuff, order types and things like that. What does it mean for traders? So I started thinking about it in that way. And when I thought about it, and I, I went back and I actually looked at, there's a really good Q&A that the SEC published. It was like within the last six, seven years or so on the safe harbor rule. And you know, you, they go through different examples. And what, what got me thinking about the odd lot part was the question that they said, you know, was regarding the last transaction price, the independent transaction price. So when an issuer, when you want to go out and do a corporate buyback, you have to, you're, you have a benchmark price at which you can trade and that's affected at the time of execution. So it can only be the higher of the bid or the last the last sale transaction. But when I read through it a little bit further, I realized that it only applies to a round lot. And there is a question and answer and an explanation that starts saying, okay, well, if the bid is, you know, 10 cents and the offer is, let's say 20 cents and the last transaction price goes off at 15 cents, but then a bunch of odd lot transactions go off at, let's say, 18 cents, can those odd lots be used as the independent transaction price for an issuer? And the answer was no. And that's what got me thinking about it. Can I jump in for one quick second? I just want to, because believe it or not, there are some people who listen to this podcast who are not in the, the used to trading speak. So I just thought I'd uh, add to them. When we say odd lot and round lot, a round lot is, a, is in the industry is 100 shares. It's called a round lot. An odd lot is anything smaller than a round lot. 
And what Anna was saying is when you're buying back stock, it means that the company is buying back their own stock. There's rules where they can't cross the spread and lift the offer, meaning they can't affect the price to go up. So they make these rules. What Anna is saying is you can buy at what the last sale price was. So it's not you causing the price to go up. So that's kind of the spirit of it. But that's right. generally on Wall Street, round lot, 100 shares or more is what's considered uh, a real trade is the wrong word, but it's what's considered um, contributing to a real trade. However, in this day and age, there's a lot more trades that are happening less than 100 shares because so many companies have high stock prices. So I just thought I'd right. throw it out there uh, for people Thank like you. myself. But go ahead. And yeah, <laughs> he was basically explaining it for my benefit because he thinks I'm too dumb to actually understand. He was being very diplomatic yeah. about it. It was basically so that I would understand. See how I did that? See how I did that, John? And I didn't even right. call it out, but I'm glad you called yourself out for being a fool. <laughs> that was, yes, lovely. Very artfully done. Thank you. You know, it's also important to say that, that it doesn't mean that the issuer can't execute in an odd lot less than 100 shares but they can use it in terms of their average daily volume requirements. So it will be it can be incorporated in, but those, when I thought about it more, when you think about the percentage of trades that occur in odd lots, especially for high price stocks, sometimes you get up upwards into 50, 75% of all trades. So when that happens, it makes it very difficult for issuers to, you know, buy back their stock because they can only transact based on what, you know, if you do the math, a very small number of shares because very few trades go off in round lots or higher. So that's what made me start thinking about it. So what I did was I, it's still in its infancy, but when I started looking at it, I, I downloaded SEC Midas data for, you know, the past, you know, two, three years. And the first quarter for 2020 hasn't come out yet. And I started looking at different kinds of stocks, ones that are expensive, ones that have wider spreads, ones that have narrow spreads, but are expensive. And there is some data that shows stocks that are higher priced and have wider spreads the day after or in the days afterwards, at least in the time frame. I don't know what that time frame is exactly. And this could be caused for a number of reasons, to be fair, which is why I'm saying it's in its infancy. But there is a jump in the percentage of odd lots that trade following the announcement of a corporate buyback or the beginning of a corporate buyback. So I said, oh, well, okay, there has to be more. I personally think that there's more to it. So that's something that I'm currently working on. And I'm thinking about whether or not there is an impact or if it is influencing one feeding the other, not necessarily a cause, but is that having something to do with, you know, just the way that the market is transacting in the wake of an announcement? If I could jump in too, just to explain a little bit, because I've seen a lot of buy side clients over the years, or I've even been publicly quoted about the um, buyback order being a very gameable order, because like Anna was saying, first, the company, the public company that wants to buy back their stock has to make a public announcement of that. And then they have to follow this schedule and when they can buy, what time of day they can buy, and the parameters around when they can buy, like we just talked about before. They can't unduly cause the stock to rip up. Right. All of which is intended to like keep a, a, an issuer from jacking up the price of their stock. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. No, right. no, no. It's, 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 it's like anything. It's done for the very, very right reasons, but because it's so prescriptive, it can lend itself to um, being sniffed out, which uh, which uh, which is which is why uh, what Anna's point is very interesting around like odd lots around the time of a uh, announcement. 
the other thing too is when you think about it, the last time that the rules had changed, at least in terms of how issuers, I mean, you know, the safe harbor rules, they haven't been changed in quite some time. And odd lots themselves had really gone up in the past handful of years, but the rules regarding safe harbor and corporate buybacks haven't changed at all. So that's where it also gets complex. Yeah. And when you think about it, whether or not, you know, for an institution or someone who's trying to buy or sell stock, just in the open market in general, trying to, you know, increase, you know, put on a position or anything and have, have nothing to do with the buyback whatsoever, does it impact their trading? Does their algorithm incorporate that in? Does it, you know, is there some way to do it more intelligently so that you can think about it that way and, and just look at data following the announcement or implementation? Well, it's a really interesting observation. And it's also, I think, an uh, indication of a broader point, which is there are so many things about the regulatory structure and the conventions that we follow that were sort of like made for a different time. Right. I and mean, this is one example where people are just used to always thinking of round lots as 100 shares at a time when everybody traded in 100 shares on a routine basis. And that's no longer no longer the case. We also right. IEX put in a similar kind of question on how the buyback rules work some couple of years ago, a request to the SEC to amend the rules. So midpoint trades would qualify for purposes of the pricing restrictions. You had a little more flexibility since if you're trading the midpoint between the bid and the offer, you're not trying to drive the stock in one direction or right. another. Um, so that's another way we thought that they might be updated to kind of match the current market. And, you know, it's something it's something that I think Melissa on her on her podcast a couple of weeks ago when she talked about the fact that issuers should start caring about odd lots. This could, you know, she spoke about it in a different context, but this could also be something that also might need to be considered as well, because if it's making it more difficult for them, whether or not you agree or disagree with it, it's, you know, it's the case, it's something that they probably should care about because they are held to these rules. So it is going to impact trading overall. It's interesting you mentioned, Melissa, I thought one of the really interesting things about our discussion with her was her experience in being a woman in a senior position um, in a Wall Street firm, kind of like over a period of time and how that is, you know, changed or the challenges that she's faced. Do you have any perspectives about that? Has it gotten better? Has it gotten easier over time? I mean, the short answer is yes. I mean, it, it definitely has. The one thing I will say is I remember when I was graduating from high school and I was going to college and I knew that I wanted to work on Wall Street. And I remember I was working in my working in my parents' diner, and there were people that were sitting there, customers. And you know, back then, when they asked me what I wanted to go, what are you going to go study? What are you going to do? And I told them I wanted to work on Wall Street, and they said, "Well, I mean, they literally looked at me like I was crazy." They said, "Well, you can't do that. Women can't work on Wall Street. <laughs> Women aren't allowed." And I was, I mean, I'll never forget it. I, I'll never forget it. Did you spit it. in and their food? <laughs> no, no, I but it, you know, no, but, yeah, he would have. And, um, and I mean, I didn't, I, you know, just, I didn't let it deter me, you know, but you know, it was, it was hard then because there were very few women, you know, at the time. And I'm definitely dating myself too. But I remember when I first started working, I had commuted with, with a girl and she couldn't, she wasn't even allowed to wear pants at the time, mm. which is crazy. Right. And yeah. so there was a, there was a dress code and women weren't allowed to wear pants, which, I mean, it's just like looking back, it's just, you know, it's wild, but I think it it has gotten easier. I think, you know, 
I was one of very few women on a trading desk for a long time. But at the same time, I was never made to feel like my, my gender mattered, right? I mean, if I produce, I was good at what I did and, you know, hold yourself accountable and you work hard. And that was, um, that was certainly rewarded. And to be fair, one of the reasons I have been able to evolve and have been successful is I've ha- I had great men around me that supported me and were very, you know, helpful in, in my career taught me the right things. They, you know, it's funny. I remember one piece of advice I had heard when I was starting in the business and I knew nobody, by the way, I absolutely knew nobody. And they said, the most important person you meet on wall street is the person that sits next to you because they're going to teach you everything. And it's true. It was, it was very true. And I was fortunate enough that I've had very, very good male counterparts and role models and bosses that, you know, helped me succeed. That's that's great. I wish I could say the same, but uh, yeah, that's a uh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, John, no, John I, sits next to me in the yeah. office, and I've learned. Nothing. I'm just uh, just joking. <laughs> I think the world of uh, world of you, Ronan, is you know, um, that's good. It's good to hear that there are some good stories in terms of people being yeah, willing to, to support mm-hmm. uh, women in uh, positions on Wall Street because it definitely is. Uh, there's a lot of room. That, there's still room for improvement, but it's good to know that there are people out there that are willing to support you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm happy too. <laughs> Great question, John. Great. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's good for us all. Um, sorry to be the, the grown up in the room and bring it back to market structure. All right. But, um, go ahead. No, it's okay. Somebody has why, to don't, why, don't, why don't you have a chat about uh, market data? Uh, it's a, a topic near and dear to John's heart. And apparently it is to Anna as well. Pre-call, I had to stop them from talking and said, take it to the call. Take it to the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, go right. go for it, John. Uh, oh, you want me to? You want me to go for it? Well, there. Yeah. yeah. So I well, as, or, or ask Anna a question. Yeah. All right. Well, as people probably know, IEX has been kind of a, a, a standout among exchanges in terms of our position on market data because we don't sell our own proprietary market data. We produce it, but we don't sell it. We don't like the system that exchanges use for kind of extorting money out of participants. So there's been a lot of activity by the SEC over the last year, and especially over the last several months in in terms of proposing changes around that. One piece is to change the system for uh, generating consolidated data. So there would be a a new uh, governance mechanism for what are called the SIPs, the uh, Securities Information Processors, and how they operate. And then a whole another system that they're proposing that would expand substantially the amount of data that is provided through what's called the public or consolidated data feed that would include odd lots, speaking of odd lots. Um, so what, what are your thoughts about either or both of those proposals? Do you feel like the SEC is going in the right direction? And is there more that you would do? It's a good, it's a good question. And from what I've seen, I, I definitely think that it's, it's a good, I mean, it's a, it's a great start. I think they've done a tremendous job with what they, what they've put out there. It's, it's thoughtful. They've spoken with participants. I also recognize the fact that it's a big undertaking and it is just that it's a start. And I think there are things in there that maybe I support, but there are also things that Perhaps I'm just not thinking of that others need to kind of chime in. I think it's a, it is a big undertaking. I do think more information is better, no question about it, especially when you think about, you know, 
Adlat's, their definition of MBBO, but particularly the redefinition of a round lot, I think is probably one of, you know, a very important element to the proposed enhancements to the, you know, to information that's, uh, that's being disseminated there. I, I think that, you know, with, you know, with odd lots, you know, probably the bigger question that I've heard is when you're thinking about the proposed enhancements, what do we do? You know, one of the bigger questions is order protection. What constitutes as an MBBO? What do we want to do with that? And it's interesting that the conversation tends to come back to that a lot. I, I think that, again, it's, it's a start. I think there are a lot of different items in there that we just need to go through. We need to go through different examples. What does it mean? What does it mean for best execution? Protected, not protected? What are, you know, what is the obligation? And they do outline that, right? There's, you know, brokers are still going to be held to best execution, whether or not they're accessing a protected MBBO or not, you know, under that new definition. I, I mean, personally, I, I think they've done, I think they've done a good job. Yeah, I do too. And I guess I, you know, one of the premises that they seem to be operating under is that the consolidated data feed, if it's broad enough, and that, you know, they put out a proposal to allow different competing consolidators to be able to disseminate this data, that mm-hmm. it could actually be a useful alternative, at least for some firms for proprietary data. So people would not sure. feel the need to buy every proprietary data feed from all of the big exchanges. Yeah. John, what are what are next steps in all of this, right? So these, these have been have proposed. Right. Do they have to be adopted or is there a comment period? What, what's going on? So so they do have to be adopted. So there's two pieces. One is the governance of the proposals I mentioned, which is actually put on the SEC calendar for a decision. So we're doing this on the 4th of May. So I think it's two days from now on Wednesday, the 6th. So I guess by the time this airs, we'll know whether it was adopted or not. But they sort of, they've really kind of moved at record speed in trying to get this to get this done, which seems like a good a good thing. And then the other piece, which is the one about competing consolidators and having more more data available on the consolidated feed, it will, will still remains to be adopted. But they seem to be really interested in pushing this through. Hey, Anna, quick question for you. What's, what's another English word for hiding nothing, showing everything? And it begins with T. Let me guess. Transparency? <laughs> bam, 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 bam. Oh, we there we go. <laughs> wow, that was so natural. You mm-hmm. get yourself yeah. a pair of IEX stocks whenever we get back to the office and I get to my drawer to send them to you. But it's a tradition on the podcast. They're well, very comfortable socks. You don't have to wait that long. I mean, we could ship them to her, right? I mean, you know, there well, is. they're in the office, John. Oh, they're in the office? the office? To get them. Oh. Yeah. You think we send them from Sockland every time someone says transparency? Well, it's not like you darn them yourself in the in the office. I mean, we we send them from some distribution point, I assume. We could. Maybe I way. did. Right. And another question for you that we ask uh, podcast guests. Uh, what's your favorite Wall Street movie? My favorite Wall Street movie? Yeah. It's a, it's a toss-up. There are two. Um, on the more serious side, Wall Street. And on the funnier side, Trading Places. Ah, good oh, one. Trading man. Places Trading is a places great is, one. That's a great one. Yeah. <laughs> wow. No one, no one's picked that one before. Oh, really? Oh, no. I, I hope that I hope that's a good thing. Everyone picks Wall Street, the original, but Trading Places is great. For that, you get a vest, 
plus the socks. Yeah, you, 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 well, might, you, might you. Get a, you might get a vest. It'll be under $100, I promise. Everything all in under $100. And I say that because I, you know, I feel like we, everyone has to have a sense of humor about things too. We can't take everything so seriously. We have to, we have to laugh. We can laugh at our industry as well. Absolutely. That is a fantastic movie. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. It's on all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, I can, I, that's one of those movies I'll always watch. I'll mm -hmm. tune in 15, 20 minutes at a clip. Nice. <laughs> Good answer. What's the favorite book a former coworker of yours gave when they left the company you were working at? Pitch anything. <laughs> Pitch anything. I've recommended it to a lot of people. A lot yeah. of people. It's a it's a funny it's a funny story because Anna brought it up last week and I forgot that I did this, John. But when I left RBC, I gave a select group of very special people a copy of the book Pitch Anything, and I wrote like comments inside it and. The reason I did is when Brad and I were doing the, the round of funding for IX, and it was, I always say it's probably the most difficult thing I've ever done in my career is raise money. Someone had suggested we read this book. And if you read the book and you take it literally, the guy does some like crazy shit. He's like, walk into a meeting. If someone's eating an apple, take their apple and eat half of it because that's what partners do and all this kind of stuff. But when you actually read the book and you get to the end and he brings it together, it was pretty fantastic. So I'm, I'm glad you liked it, Anna. Like I genuinely thought it was a very useful book, especially in a sales role. It's 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 pretty much a, it's written by this guy Oren and Brad and I would always joke go, what would Oren do? <laughs> it does not collect dust on my shelf. Great book. Pitch anything. No, no, it's 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 a pretty funny one. You can be assured <laughs> it does not it does not collect dust on my shelf. I, I I frequently go back to it. Oh, I have another real quick question while I'm lining them up, and it's just it's just more like an industry question. I know um, now, obviously, a lot of people know because. You have a pretty big distro on your market structure pieces, which I think are great. Thank you. Prompted me to ask you to join us today, which we appreciate. And now you're over at BNP, and I think people are just curious, the, what's the move from Deutsche Bank to BNP? Is it like electronic from Deutsche Bank is now BNP electronic? Or, or anything you can tell us on that, just more from an informational purpose, please. Sure. So in July of uh, 2019, it was announced that BNP would be acquiring Deutsche Bank's electronic electronic trading department and the prime services area. It was announced in July of 19, and it, the deal closed at the end of 19, um, at the end of last year. And now we're in the process of, or it is in the process, uh, following regulatory approval, which it received, of transitioning the business to uh, the businesses to BNP. And so what they did was recently at the end of February, they started with the, you know, transitioning a group, uh, a group of us. And so I was one of the first, you know, first folks in that group to go over to, to BNP. So I'm officially an employee of BNP and they're going to continue to transition the remainder of the businesses, you know, over, over the next year or so. Okay, cool. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Did you know that, John? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's good. To, but I'm sure it's an experience that a lot of people, um, and certainly at Wall Street firms, sure, because there's, you know, everything's in transition all the time. And people sort of, this is a yep. case like where the entire group was pretty much moved more or less intact or? Uh, no, it's it's going to be done in phases. Okay. Right. So, you know, not everybody in, you know, the New York, U.S., 
electronic desk have been moved over. There was a group of us that was, and there's still a portion that are still behind at DB. And that'll evolve over time. And, you know, as they kind of go through the process, I don't know the timeline for it all, but, you know, that's, you know, product management, it's, you know, all of that. But obviously there's, you know, plan in, in place that they're, that they're, going through. Do, do you have any thoughts, Anna, about given the nature of the work that you do, how easily or not it's it's been to to do that work remotely? And at what point are, are you ready to go back? Is it at what point do you think people will feel comfortable going back? Any thoughts about in any of that? I think, you know, like everybody, we all kind of have a, a case of cabin fever, no question about it. I am looking forward to going back, very much so. I, I think from where I sit, it's, you know, there are two things that make it a little bit challenging, you know, to do my job from home is trying to get large and work with large amounts of data, whether sourcing it from Bloomberg, whether sourcing it, let's say from FINRA and, you know, doing it on a home PC and, you know, a work laptop and things like that. Just the, you know, massaging and interpreting and analyzing data becomes difficult, right? We're all used to having multiple screens that are big and we can look at a big picture and, you know, kind of look at multiple things at once. But then there's also, for me, it's the human side of it. And so what I think this whole experience has not just taught me, but I think it's probably taught everybody is we are certainly lucky that we've had technology and all of its benefits, whether it's Zoom, you know, FaceTime and, you know, all of that to communicate with one another and see one another on a regular basis. But I also think that there's nothing like the human interaction that we have on a regular basis, especially from a trading standpoint. And so for me, I, I do that regularly. I run ideas by people. I'm saying, okay, I'm looking at this. I'm looking at this. Let me walk you through it. And I do that because I need people to challenge me, right? I need people to give me the other side of the argument or tell me things that I know I'm, I'm not thinking of because I just simply can't think of everything. So just, you know, running through those experiences and scenarios with people help me develop different ideas and things, you know, like that. You know, I do, I do have some interaction, but, you know, also for someone like me, because I'm not in a direct trading capacity any longer. and you know, not, you know, direct selling either. People's time is limited and their challenge too with the limitations that working from home presents to them. So, you know, I try and be mindful of that and respectful. So that part can be, you know, can be a little bit challenging, but, you know, like everybody else, if that's my worst problem, I'll, I'll take it. Absolutely. Bingo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you said that right. Yeah. <laughs> It really did. It's kind of funny because a lot of times people will ask and they'll check in on you and you'll be like, look, my kids are going nuts. It's a pain in the ass it's working from home every day. The novelty certainly wore off. But if that's if that's your complaint and your only complaint, that's no complaint at all relative yeah. to everything else that's going on. And it's cer it certainly had me think about, um, you know, just from the market structure world. It's, you know, sometimes the topics, are they going to get pushed down? in the calendar are they not that they're any less important but i feel as though you know what becomes more important especially in times like these are the liquidity trends what people are going to do now what people are going to do between now and the next few weeks and how do they apply all of that to their trading are they going to have a discussion around 
market data? Some, yes. I mean, they definitely are. But some of these topics aren't going to be, you know, regular deep discussions like we normally would have in situations not like this. Right. And I agree with you completely. The kind of collaboration that you can do when you're physically in the same space is just not the same as it, it doesn't substitute just through Zoom or whatever other kind of uh, technology you're using. Not the same at all, I think. Yeah, no, it definitely it definitely doesn't substitute because what I found is uh, I found video conferencing way more useful than I would have ever imagined it to be. But what it doesn't allow you to do is have the downtime and just shoot the shit about nonsense. And I find, again, very limited complaint relative to everything else that you do end up just going from Zoom to Zoom or teams to teams or whatever yeah. it is that you're using. Whereas uh, that's why John and I do a podcast so we can banter with each other for no other reason. <laughs> but, that, but, that, but that's, that's normally, that's, that's normally our whole office day. He walks in, he goes, top of the morning to you. Yeah. And this yeah. Shit didn't just present itself on the podcast. This is basically just a way of amusing ourselves. It doesn't really serve any other purpose, but that's, you know, that's fine. But we're so glad to have had you join us today. And I think that's a wrap on this one. We try to keep them short. Because uh, okay. millennials like millennials, millennials like to listen to these things on their commute. <laughs> You're gonna edit that one out. <laughs> and I, I hopefully, hopefully, a millennium likes to listen to it too. That'd yeah. be great. Mm -hmm. But um, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, and I'll send you the socks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And great call. You, you win the awards so far on the best movie pick. <laughs> it's, okay. Sounds so nice. And now offline, Anna, you can give me all the real dirt about Ronan and um, tell me the stories that you couldn't tell me. <laughs> podcast so okay thank you i appreciate it all right take care bucks and lines over and out thank you over and out goodbye <laughs> goodbye Anna. bye the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only and iex group inc and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity copyright iex group inc all rights reserved